I'd like to just start off with a slight eulogy, a small eulogy for William Pierce. Bill Pierce was a, a good guy. He was originally from Columbus, Ohio, and he was 85 years old. Last in October the 22nd, he died. And we really miss Bill because he left such a good example. And I'll cite some of the example that he left. Uh, and it was neat because when he went into the nursing home, he didn't want to be over close to his daughter. He wanted to be close to his people in the church, to be close to CBCG and be able to attend services so that the brethren could visit him. And it was really nice. Bill was funny. He said that, he said, well, you don't always have to call me Bill. You can go call me Bob because I, I go by both. And so I always made it a point to call him Bill one time and then Bob the next and then Bill and then Bob. <laughs> and he, he loved it. It was great. That was his kind of thing. So it was, it's, that was a fun thing. He had a good sense of humor and he always wanted to bring some levity to wherever he was. But, oh, and, and I'm tell you too, that he is survived by three adult children and six grandchildren and extended family. But he left a great example. His roommate at the nursing home was an atheist, but Bob would talk to him over and over again about his relationship with God and fulfilled prophecy and things that he saw and the things that he understood. And by the time that Bill died, the man is no longer an atheist. He had such a witness that the man is now fully on board and wants a Christian uh, connection. And he believes the Bible, and he's starting to read, and that's amazing. And when Bill, at the very last, went to the hospital, he was really hoping that Bill was going to come back. And so he told Paula, his daughter, Bob's daughter, says, I want to make sure that he understands how much he meant to me because he's changed my life. And she said, I was touched by that. And he wrote him a four-page letter telling Bill what a difference he had made in his life. Not only that, but a lot of the people who were there, Bill would go and just talk to them. And I had a hard time hearing. And so he would say, what's that? Say that again. But he didn't understand all everything that was going on, but he would still talk to people about God and truth. He left a legacy of godliness and humor. And, and interesting that people were drawn to him, and a lot of people asked about him. His male nurse, Arnell, he was a Filipino guy, loved talking to him. And he told Paula, he's my favorite. He's, I always love coming into this room. He's always a positive guy. The head of nursing, the director of nurses, also said, told Paula that they always looked forward to him, and they, they kept wanting to vote him as being the head of the, the patient's and and they they had a little group there so that he could re, uh, report to the nursing staff because he was so nice friendly and loving kind and honorable they believed him they believed him to be true 
So what do we see about Bill? Bill left us a legacy. It's what people remembered about him when we're talking about him and reminiscing about him. It's the fruit that he produced. What I'm talking about is death. How do we see death? How should we see death? How should we look at death? How does God look at death? And so today we'll be looking at, in the Bible, a few points, because there's so much about death in the Bible. However, I think there's some key issues that we need to focus on to understand what God's perspective is. But first, we have to realize that the world is so confused about death. Halloween, October 31st, the Day of the Dead, and it's where they have this misconstrued idea that the that the dead can help us somehow? How, do, how could that be a benefit? There's even a, a whole religion dedicated to ancestor worship. And not only that, brethren, but listen, we're in the end times, as far as I can tell. As far as I can tell, it seems like we're in the end times, and there's going to be so much more death. Already, and I'll just mention this in passing, and, and I real fully understand where we believe we are and where we believe that we are not uh, when it comes to the end-time prophecy. But Revelation 9.14 and uh, 16.14 both talk about the, the there's two passages about the Euphrates River drying up, and it's been in the news now for a long time. There's a number of—I was surprised to see this, but there's a number of YouTube videos about saying, is this a prophecy being fulfilled? And it's not yet. The 16 is just before Armageddon, and then the um, the sixth uh, uh, trumpet for 19, so uh, for 9, rather. But what it is, in, in Revelation 9, it says that there, the four demons that were bound for this time would kill a third of humanity. A third. If we're at 9 billion people, that means three billion people will perish. We're going to be, ha but so we have to have a proper perspective. And, and look, the uh, Euphrates is, dry, is drying up. It's not dried up, right? So it's not a direct fulfillment of those things, but it could be a precursor. It could be a pre-awareness or a precursor that would happen in advance of the, the fulfillment of it. But let's look at what the Bible says about this. Let's start uh, by turning to uh, Philippians 1 and verse 20. Philippians 1 and verse 20. And while we're turning there, I'm going to cite two other passages. So Psalm 23 and verse 4. Psalm 23, and it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear none evil, for you are with me. And that's the first point that I'll be making after this introduction is that we need not fear death. We need not fear death. But another scripture is Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So God doesn't want to kill people, but he does want us. He is going to punish for evil, for sinfulness. 
Philippians 1 and verse 20. How should we look at death? Philippians 1 verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in no way shall I be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, Christ shall be magnified now in my body, whether by life or by death. So my focus is, Paul saying, my focus is that I'm going to live to Christ, and either by my living or in my dying, I want it all to be towards Christ. For to me, verse 21, to live is Christ. That's the whole reason for my purpose of living, he's saying. And to die is gain. Now, how is it that death can be a gain? Because Revelation, what, doesn't Revelation 21 and verse 4 say that he's going to wipe away every tear and that there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, right? Let's turn now just a few pages to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2, and we'll see, and in the previous book to that is Romans, and so eventually we'll be coming back to Romans 7. 1 Corinthians 2.9, we don't have to fear the unknown of what death is. We don't have to be scared of dying. And yet, that's the common thing. 1 Corinthians 2.9, but accordingly, as it is written, the eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God's got such an amazing hope and a premise. A, a beauty, a promise, rather, not a premise, a promise of what he's going to provide for us. So for us, to die can be gained because we no longer have to fight the struggles and the trials of this world. But what do we do with people who we've lost? We miss them, right? That it says that the dead know nothing, but we in our minds, we miss those people who we lost. Our mothers, our fathers, our sisters, our brothers, our children, our animals. We, if we lose a dog or that we've hung on to for a long time or a cat, how that, that's a hole in our heart, right? But it's not over. And that's the beautiful thing is that we don't have to look at the negativity of it. We're sad because we miss them. And if we look at it in the, if we boil it down to the basic factors of it, it's selfishness, right? We miss them. We don't get to see them anymore. There's a finality. We don't have that contact. We can't have ever talked to them again. So we might be sad. We might be upset about that. And that's unfortunate for us. But they no longer have to struggle in the flesh. That's a real benefit. Okay. The second point now, let's, rather than us turning to other scriptures just for time's sake, I, I said we we're going to go over there. We're, let's turn to Romans 7 now. And while we're going to Romans 7, <clears throat> now bear with me. This is the second point. The second point of the first point was that we should not fear it. Okay. The second point is that we're to bear fruit. And in Romans 7 and verse 1, he tells us how long will a man be under law for as long as he lives. And then he uses the analogy of being married. 
and the marriage concept goes verses two through four. And he's saying that you're bound to in marriage to your mate for as long as you live, with certain few exceptions that Christ outlined. Not for every cause, not for every reason. But there are times when a person can be have the marriage dissolved. But he uses that analogy for the fruit analogy that he's been expounding on in chapter 6, 7, and 8. And we're going to look at those things. Let's look at verse 4. In the same way, brethren, this is Romans 7 and verse 4. In the same way, my brethren, you were also made dead, we're talking about death here, to the marriage law of the old covenant, talking about our covenant now, by the body of Christ in order for you to be married to another. What's he say? The God of the Old Testament died because Israel continued to live. There was a divorcing, and Israel was not allowed to marry another as long as Jesus was alive, though the Creator was alive. So he came to this earth to be the sacrifice for us all, and when he died, then that ended that old marriage covenant. Now we're free to marry Jesus Christ in the, in the spiritual realm in the millennium, right? Or at the resurrection, rather, the first fruits. So we were made dead to the marriage law, to the old covenant by the body of Christ in order for you to be married to another. Who? Who was raised from the dead, talking about Jesus Christ, that we should bring forth fruit to God. Now, this is interesting. Paul talks about fruit all through chapters in chapter 5, but 6, 7, and 8. And he compares and contrasts against two ways of life. We have the wrong way of life that is sin and leads to, or the, the produce of, or the yield of, or the fruit of, the wages of, is death, Romans 6.23. We know that. But there's the righteous way, and the righteous way, when we produce positive fruit, leads us to life. That is the law of life. When we are living the righteousness and the law, that leads to a yield of life everlasting. Here, let's look at just some things. We're just going to buzz through this, but Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, he begins the compare and the contrasts. Are you ignorant that we, as many as are baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried, and we want to keep that old man down. Now, now let's skip to 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old man, who we want to keep buried, our old man was co-crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. We want to put that down so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Contrast, because the one who has died to sin has now been justified from sin. Verse 13, likewise, do not yield yourselves members, no, do not yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Rather, yield yourselves to God. Rather is a compare and a contrast word. So it's saying, don't do the wrong, do the good. Rather, yield yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
So we have a choice. We can be either instruments of unrighteousness to sin or instruments of righteousness to God. And he uses the word rather there. Look at 16. Don't you realize that to whom you yield yourselves as servants to obey? That's the negative. You, oh, No, you are servants of the ones you obey, whether it is of sin unto death or, contrast word, obedience unto righteousness. 17. But thanks be to God that you were the servants of sin, were, but, contrast word, you have obeyed from the heart. 18. You have been delivered from sin. You became the servants of righteousness. Verse 19. I speak from a human point of view because of the weakness of your flesh, for you, for just as you once yielded your members in bondage to uncleanness and to lawlessness unto lawlessness. So our sin only begat sin. The more lawless we were, the more sinful we became. But, so now, contrast, yield your members in bondage to righteousness unto sanctification. Now he finally says the word. He's just been giving the compare and the contrast. But look at verse 21. Therefore, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you were now ashamed? That's the bad, the negative, right? For the end result of those things is death. He's going to say it overtly in just a second. The wages of sin is death. But he's saying the end result, the wages of sin, the law of sin that he covers in in chapter 7, the yield of sin, the therefore of sin, the produce of sin is death. The end result of those things is death. But, contrast, now that you have been delivered from sin and have become servants of God, you have fruit, one more time we're talking about the fruit, unto sanctification. And the end result, the yield, the therefore, is eternal life. The end result, the yield, is eternal life. Isn't that amazing? For the wages of sin, again, he's telling us the negative, Compare and contrast, the wages of sin is death. That's the law of sin. The law of sin is that we have to sin. We need a deliverer. We need a Savior. And without Jesus Christ as Savior, we have no deliverance. And the yield of that will be death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We already talked about in 7.4 how that we, he showed us the fruit who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit to God. That's the positive. Look at the negative contrast in verse five. For as long as we were in the flesh and the passions of sins, which were through the law, were working within our own members to bring forth fruit unto death. Look over in seven, beginning 13 through the end of the chapter. It talks all about the the law of sin, which just simply means that we have a carnal nature and we will sin, we must sin. If we did not sin, we would not need a Savior. But God mandated that all men sin since Adam, Romans 5.12, that all sin entered into all mankind, and thus all men must sin, and thus we must have a Savior. That's a beautiful thing. 
Now, okay, the, the fruit of which is death we've already talked about. Now let's look at 8.2. 8.2 compares the law of the Spirit, which is life, which yields to life, versus the law, the law of death, the law of sin, which yields death, right? But then we see it in verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, 7, and, seven 8, and 9. It contrasts the carnal mind, and it tells us clearly the carnal mind is enmity, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, but verse 9. However, contrast, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So in verse 10, 13, 15, it's just amazing. So how do we produce this fruit? What is the good fruit that we're supposed to produce? John 15 says that we have to stay connected to the vine, right? And in the vine, if we stay connected to Jesus Christ, then we can stay and be and produce righteousness. We can be righteousness. We can think righteousness. We can do righteousness. We can reflect godly love. John the Baptist uh, told the multitudes in Luke 3 and verse 8, says, therefore, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Okay, the first thing, the first point was we don't have to fear death. The second is we're supposed to produce fruits and that the fruits that we yield should be positive and it should be uplifting towards righteousness. The third point is hope. We need to have the hope that God provides. John 11 and verse 25. Let's turn to John 11. John 11 and verse 25. This is an a incredible sp- scripture of hopefulness that Jesus gives to us. John 11 and verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. We have a hope in life eternal. We have a hope in the resurrection to come. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live again. Amazing. If we die, it's not over. If we die, there's hope. If we die, there's salvation. If we die, there's a resurrection of the dead. We can look at death as a stepping stone unto eternal life, and we should see it as such. 1 Corinthians 15. We can't not go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54. Behold, I show you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all fall asleep. And by the way, God uses sleep as an analogy or a metaphor for death over 50 times in the Bible. Over 50 times. How does God look at death? God sees it as a temporary cessation. It's just a, we're put on pause. We flick the light switch. The light switch is off for a little bit, and then he's going to flick the light switch back on. Death is nothing to fear. We shall all be changed, verse 52, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptibility, and the mortal, this mortal must put on immortality. Now, when this corruptible, this earthly coil that we're eventually will shuffle off, this tent, this tabernacle, 
When this corruptible shall have put on incorruptibility, the upward movement, the yea, (laughs) the righteousness, the goodness, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus Christ is our victory. What was it that we started in in Philippians, where it says to live is Christ and then to die is gain? We have gain because we can we die. What a blessing and a benefit. We have hope in the resurrection. Listen, spiritual death is what we should fear. Spiritual death is no legacy. There's no positive remembrance. There's no no fruit, no positive fruit. There's no positive yield. It's a permanent separation from God. Spiritual death is the second death, and we want no part of that. We should fear that. But our physical death is nothing that we have to be worried about. This death of this life is simply a stepping stone to eternal life where we can be eternally with the Creator. Okay, bring this, uh, wrap this to a conclusion here. How should we look at death? The Bible tells us, and I've and I brought forth three points, and I'm sure that there's so much more that you could add to it. But I want this totally to be helpful and positive and looking forward to what God promises us, right? The first point is we don't have to fear. No fear. No fear of death. The second point is that we should produce fruit and that the fruits that we produce will arrange for us to be in the third point, in the resurrection, where, which we have hope in. We have great hope in the resurrection. So if we can look at it as God does, sleep is just a temporary on-off switch. It's just a temporary cessation. We don't have to worry so much about it and be all concerned. Let's go back to Romans 8 to finish up. Romans 8. And I want to show you that we can take so much heart and take so much hope in this. And I want to leave you with one more point. And that point is that how we look at death is how we should look at our lives. We should look at our lives as being Christ. Our lives are lived towards for Christ. Our lives are to produce fruit. That's the second point that I mentioned. Our lives are to produce godly fruit, not just fruit, any old fruit. We need to stay connected to the vine, and we need to produce godly fruit. But look at this. We can think back to Bill Pierce and say, we miss Bob. We we miss him, and we miss all of the contribution and his humor and and his conviction and how he shared his faith with other people. But we can also know that God, in his great and gracious love, awaits the resurrection when he will bring those who he has worked with to produce positive fruit to life again, eternal life. And is there anything that can separate us from God and his love? Let's read it. 
Last two verses in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what an amazing thing that death, not even this physical death, can separate us from the love that God has for us. May you be blessed, and may you have the confidence that God will work in you as you die. We all will die. What's the old saying? Nobody gets out of this life alive, right? But as you die, don't fear it, because at some point we will die. Don't fear the death of your loved ones. Nothing can separate us from God.